Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Bird. Tonight, we hear the story of one of the world's most prolific art thieves without violence, even a weapon. He spirited away some 300 works of art from 200 places over a seven-year period before he was arrested in 2001, and he never sold any of it, keeping it in an attic in France where he would admire it instead. So why did he do it? How did he get caught? It's all laid out in a great new book called The Art Thief, and author Michael Finkel joins us to share the story. Pickleball is certainly popular. You may have heard of it. And uh, exercise, of course, is just what the doctor ordered for most of us who engage in it. But with the popularity comes a new problem, injuries, and a big spike in stuff such as sprained ankles, torn ACLs, wrist and shoulder problems, all down, perhaps, to pickleball. So how best to avoid that, we find out. The ocean covers 71% of the Earth's surface. So much of it, though, remains a mystery to us. We find out about the race to map the ocean floor. Why has it taken us so long? And can it be done by 2030 as an ambitious new project hopes to accomplish? But first, time has run out on a winning lottery ticket worth $70 million. And if nothing has changed, it will be by far the highest unclaimed lottery prize in Canadian history. We find out to what lengths lottery officials went to try to track the winner down and what happens to all that money if indeed no winner steps up. But let's start with that lottery jackpot because, again, as I said, at uh, 10.30 Eastern, so in about 24 minutes' time, time will run out on a winning ticket worth $70 million. That's right, $70 million. That lottery ticket was drawn, the winning number was drawn in 2022 uh, on this day, and it's set to expire at 10.30 p.m., as I mentioned. If it stays without a winner, it will be the biggest unclaimed prize in Canadian lottery history. So again, last June 28th, the winning Lotto Max numbers belong to just one single ticket purchased at one of the 400 or so uh, lottery vendor locations in the Toronto area of Scarborough. Now, sometimes winners of those huge prizes will wait a bit to get their affairs in order, brace for the publicity before stepping forward to claim their winnings. You've seen that happen before, right? It takes a few months or, you know, just a while. They wait. They wait, probably for good reason. But uh, OLG started to get the sense that maybe this time it was different. And in mid-May, they started to put out the call, trying to make sure that people out there were aware that this particularly massive prize was going to go unclaimed and time was running out. The winning numbers, they said, back in June, on June 28, 2022, a year ago, uh, were 8, 19, 22, 41, 42, 46, and 47. A lot of 40s in there. Bonus number 10. Someone's number came up that night, but here we are a year later, and no one, no one, has stepped forward with that ticket. And again, if it were to go unclaimed, it would be by far the biggest sum to be lost to the clock. Joining me now is Tony Batoni, uh, OLG's spokesperson. Tony, thank you so much. Ben, anytime. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Time is ticking here. This is quite the story. I can't begin to imagine what it must be like to think that somewhere out there is a winning ticket worth $70 million, and there is every possibility that it's going to simply go unclaimed. So, and that's that's what we're struggling with as well, too. So we know that somebody put down five, ten, fifteen dollars to buy this Lotto Max ticket last year, and for a chance to win seventy million dollars, and they actually won seventy million dollars, but they have not checked this ticket at all. And so then that's the real strange part because we know 
from past winners, many past winners that win 50, 60, 70, they take a couple of months to talk to financial planners. Uh, they wait, you know, just to get everything to sink in. But in the meantime, they'll check their ticket on the OLG app or they'll check their ticket at the self-checker, but they won't put it in the terminal because once you put it in the terminal, it the rings. whistles go off. Yeah. But in this case, no one has checked that ticket there's been no activity on that ticket since the day it was sold. So there's what could have happened to that ticket? What could have happened to that person with that ticket is the $70 million question. It is. What do we know about the ticket? Obviously, we know the winning number. That much is clear. But what do we know about uh, about the ticket? Where I, so, I gather we know where generally where it was bought. Yeah. So OLG has every piece of information about that ticket, except for one critical piece, who the owner is. So we know exactly where it was purchased. We've said publicly it was purchased in Scarborough. We can't be any more specific than that because we really do need that person to tell us where the ticket was bought because that, that helps us in the, the prize claim process to determine if you are the rightful owner of that ticket. So we know what time it was purchased at, what other products were purchased with that ticket. And I'm not talking about candy or cigarettes. I'm talking about whether it was a 649, quick pick, uh, the the extra encore. It's, it's Everything, the egg, machine, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so but we know everything about that. ticket. We even know some history about that ticket if those numbers were have been played previously. But we need that person, whether they have a physical ticket or not, to come forward and, and let us know about that information. So, again, there's two ways of doing it. If you have the physical ticket, the time is ticking very, yeah. very much. You, you, have, you have minutes, yeah. basically, uh, to validate it at one of our retail locations for those bells and whistles to go off. And then the process will start. So you, you're under the deadline there if that happens. But we've had... Hundreds of people call, and actually, it's a, no over doubt. a lot of hundred people call to say that they've lost the ticket. Yes. If you lost the ticket, again, if you can tell us all the information about that ticket, then you could be the rightful owner, and you could be in line for that seventy million dollars. Yeah, how does that work, Tony? Because I didn't realize. I mean, clearly, you're going to get a lot of people calling saying, "Well, that was my ticket," when it probably wasn't. And you probably have enough information to know. I mean, it's it's pretty forensic. Like you have enough information yeah. to know whether they bought it or not, right? I, yeah. I would suspect. But but how many phone calls have you been getting? So well, uh, so we've launched the the, the awareness campaign uh, mid May, and we've had a total of over twenty three hundred calls. But 1,100 of those are actual people to say that I've lost the ticket. So I've lost the ticket. I think I bought it in Scarborough. We ask them some simple questions right at the beginning, like where in Scarborough? Can you name the retailer? Uh, the date that you purchased that ticket? Uh, we don't ask for the numbers because the numbers are public. Right. But uh, so if they can give us some of that, that basic information, then they go on for a, a bit more of a detailed uh, review process. But if they haven't, then they're discounted right away. So we're trying to get through those folks. So as long as the folks have called in prior to the expiry time, they're still in the queue. And we'll, And right now we're, we're dealing with about two to 300 in the backlog. So those people, we have an obligation to listen to those people, to, to give them their due, uh, due time to explain what happened. But again, we will have to determine if there is a winner at least in the next few days. So uh, by tomorrow, we should know if someone has actually validated that ticket, but we still have that little bit of backlog and our investigators need that time just to 
do the due diligence on those people that have called. We have an obligation to at least listen to them and see, yeah. what, see if they have a claim. If they, we could have a, a needle in the haystack of those two or 300 people left in the queue. Yeah, because it's an awful, an awful lot of money. You don't have an army of people to do this either. I mean, this is not it's, something you're called on to do very often. So clearly you can't sort of surge to meet demand. You really have uh, to let your... Absolutely, yeah. yeah. We, we put more people on for you know to, to answer those calls, but there's a small group of people that are uh, looking at those folks and uh, and actually one of the folks that's looking at them she's going to retire on friday so <laughs> it's a busy last taking, week yeah and we're, we're not giving her an easy time before she leaves too so she's not happy with me let's put it that way <laughs> yeah no no but wouldn't it be nice if someone actually did have the, did have the ticket or had lost the ticket yeah. and could prove it uh, it's interesting though I, I guess if you look at the timing now it makes sense that a lot of people who win huge amounts will take their time in claiming the winnings and obviously by mid-may alarm bells for you guys start to go off that this wasn't the normal way things unfold when a winning ticket yeah, uh, and, isn't claimed. Yeah. And usually, again, usually it's two to three months that people come forward. Some people come forward right away. They really do. Some people take their time. We've had people at least five or six months in, but again, they have that one year expiry date and people have asked me, well, you know, will you change the process? But yeah. Lotto Max 649, these are national games. So they're played from coast to coast to coast. Uh, and, you know, it's so we need the same rules in BC and Atlantic Canada, a lot of Quebec. So we all have the same rules of a one-year expiry date. Right. And again, one year really does give you enough time to check those tickets. It also gives you enough time to potentially lose those tickets as well. So we always say, check your tickets right away. Sign that ticket once you get it. But here's a little plug for us as well, too. If you want to avoid all that stuff, you can buy your tickets online. If you buy your tickets online and you win a prize, you get an email from us to it's say- automatic. It's yeah. automatic. And we also have a record of that. So those are not anonymous purchases. But when you buy at retail, and a majority of the people do buy at retail, those are anonymous purchases. Um, you know, the retailer may know you, but they don't know if they've actually sold the winning ticket until after that prize is claimed too. So right now, that retailer in Scarborough doesn't know they have sold that seventy million dollar ticket. Wow. Tony, this is hist if this goes unclaimed, this is by far and wide the largest amount ever to go unclaimed in this country. Yeah, you know what? I always love being in the record books, but this is one case I really don't want to be in the record books. So right now, the biggest unclaimed prize was a ticket sold in BC uh, back in August 2021. It was another Lotto Max ticket, and that jackpot went unclaimed, and that jackpot was worth. $15 million, $15 million. So this 71, this $70 million prize could potentially break the record. And again, you know what? Again, somebody paid some money for a chance for that prize and they won that prize. And we would love to pay it out. And I've, I've been present to, uh, for dozens and dozens of these multi-million dollar check presentations. I think I'm up to about $3 billion personally that I've been in attendance to. And these are life-changing amounts of money. And these, these folks just, you know, are in shock and everything. And for someone to find out later on that they won oh, some money that's... and claim it, I, I, I don't even know. Yeah, what do you that, what that's do you what I'm thinking of. You know, someone someone got it as a gift in a card, and you know, in a couple of years, they're looking through their stuff, and it falls out onto the floor, and there it is. There's yeah, the I, there's that ticket. You're thinking, hmm, I wonder if that one. No, maybe I'll check the numbers. Just don't don't check the numbers. Yeah, if, if you do go to try to validate it, it will come up as expired or not in file or something along that line too. So I'm hoping someone comes forward. That's that's my number one goal. But if they don't. 
potentially, you know what, let's leave sleeping dogs lie in this. Case. Yeah. I mean, maybe the ticket is truly lost somewhere or just was never seen or forgotten about, or, you know, got thrown yeah. away by accident. The person doesn't even know that doesn't even know that it won. What happens to the money, Tony, if it doesn't go, if it's not won? Yeah. So it, so it does, because again, it's a, a national lottery game. It goes back into the lotto max prize pool. So it, it doesn't mean that the jackpot will jump to $70 million automatically up for Friday. It's at 40 million right now, but it will be absorbed into there. So the players will have access to that money eventually over time too. So um, yeah, this is, this is unprecedented. And Ben, actually we did have a case quite a few years ago where there was a ticket worth $50 million. Again, it was Lotto Max. And it was a ticket sold in Cambridge, Ontario. Time had gone by and we didn't have anyone claiming. But for some reason, we had video. We don't see the video from the from these stores are not OLG video and we cannot pull them uh, because of privacy reasons. But back then we did get the video, but we also knew that the person that bought that ticket bought the ticket with a a credit card Ah, and a loyalty card as well. So we knew that we knew that who that person was. We put out again an awareness campaign. No one came forward, but we had an obligation to go and approach that person. Makes and sense. we did uh, because we knew exactly who she was. And she was a woman that lived in Hamilton, worked in Cambridge, lived in Hamilton, Ontario, really didn't hear the news back then uh, uh, so much. Um, but we told her that we we think she's the winner. Can she find the ticket? Uh, but she did not have the ticket. And it was determined that she checked a whole bunch of tickets. That ticket was stuck in there, but all those other tickets were non-winners. She threw the ticket out. But because yeah. we had that video evidence and she then gave us some more information because we didn't show her the video. We told her there was some video evidence and she gave us every piece of information. I bought it at a shopper's drug mart, paid right. this way, that way. I played these tickets before and Lo and behold, we paid her the $50 million. So well, it can uh, happen. It well, can Tony, happen. Tony, uh, this one is the, the, the happy ending for this story is is is, is running, <laughs> running out, running of, time, out but, of time. But I hope it happens. <laughs> Tony, thank you so much for uh, for explaining all of that. What an interesting, what an interesting phenomenon. I mean, I really hope someone, if if you have that ticket, I really hope you find it tonight. My fingers and toes are crossed, Ben. They all, all they're crossed. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. <laughs> Thanks again. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> another mystery here. We look into the night sky, we struggle to understand the vastness of what's above us, right? But there's a very sizable mystery that lies far, lies far closer to home. In fact, it's, it is here on our home planet. And, and you'll never, you've probably dipped your toes into it at least once at some point in your life. The ocean covers something like 362 million, 362 million square kilometers. Five oceans cover 71% of the planet's surface. Yet even now, Surrounded by all these advances in technology that we have, uh, we don't really have a great understanding of what lies beneath what's on the ocean floor. There is now, though, a race to completely map the floor. Scientists, inventors, militaries, private explorers are all working, even competing, to obtain an accurate reading of that incredibly vast terrain. The race to the bottom, as it's called, pun intended, is detailed in a new book uh, by a Canadian author and ocean journalist, Laura Trithui, who made her debut a few years back with a book called The Imperiled Ocean. Now, she grew up in Toronto, so a lot of her love of the ocean 
was through her imagination in books such as 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, But in the deepest map, her new book, The High Stakes Race to Chart the World's Oceans, she collects a series of stories and presents a collection of characters, all looking to better understand what lies deep beneath the ocean's surface. And Laura Trithui, uh, her book is out, by the way, on July the 11th. And Laura Trithui joins me now. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. I, you know, one thing really stood out, it's early on in the book, but one thing really stood out, because I think I've used this term before, that we know more about, you know, space than we know about the ocean floor. We know more about the moon than we know about the ocean floor and how certain people, or one person you spoke to specifically, really doesn't like that comparison. And it sort of encapsulates what this book is about in some ways. Yep, that's right. That was a huge inspiration behind the book. Yes, this cliche that we know more about the moon and Mars than we do the bottom of the ocean floor. And it's sort of it's sort of true and it's sort of not true. This scientist that you're thinking of is this deep sea scientist, Alan Jameson, who has been involved in a bunch of ocean mapping expeditions and and ocean science expeditions, and he hates this 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 phrase because he feels like it, it it's not that impressive to say that we don't know very much about this you know dry dusty moon planet when we have this watery dynamic planet that we've barely mapped. So that that cliche was really kind of kicked off the whole inspiration for the the book because I just wanted to know more about you know why do we care more about outer space than we do our own planet. And so that's that's really where the book began. And it just took me on this tremendous journey through meeting all these different private explorers and investors and scientists and ocean mappers. It is a community. And that's interesting because one would always think that it would somehow be mandated by, you know, mandate. And, and there is a, a project, a universal project going on. But one would always think, oh, well, you know, the countries, the UN is going to do this for us, right? Uh, but you point out, A, what a Herculean task it is because of just how big a land, you know, land, it's the wrong word, how big, a, big an area we're talking about, but also just how varied the efforts to map it are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So, Um, One of the first things that I sort of set out trying to figure out with this book was just why is it so hard to map the ocean? Why has it taken us so long to even map the the little that we have mapped? So right now, the best maps we have are about 25% complete um, and less than 1% of the deep sea is explored. And as you mentioned, one of the main reasons for why we haven't mapped the deep sea is just the ocean is gigantic. It covers 71% of the planet. And it's really hard to tell people who live on the other 29%, you know, how big that space is. Um, The ocean is just also really deep. It's a really hostile environment to work. So there's wind and water and waves that are all kind of conspiring against the ocean mapper, making it really difficult to be out there. Um, It's also that makes it really expensive. All those practical reasons aside, the point is, it's really challenging to map the ocean. It's really expensive, but humans have done a lot of challenging, expensive things. So why haven't we done this? And so that kind of became the the focus of the book, because we can do this right now, but we've chosen not to. Is is there, a, I mean, I know we're trying to uh, by 2030. That's one of the, the missions here. I don't know how feasible that is, but to go back to the beginning of, of the story, did you ever figure out why it is that we're, is it just... It's infinitely difficult, right? I mean, I think that's part of it. Is it? It is. It is very challenging, and there's a lot of, you know, the, you know, the sovereignty of the ocean is an interesting topic as well. So yeah, so there's a cost issue there. So it's probably going to cost about three to five billion dollars to map the bottom of the seafloor. 
That is what uh, this organization, CBID 2030, who's trying to map the seafloor, that's the number that they put out. And, you know, $3 billion sounds like a lot of money, but it's really pe- peanuts in the grand scheme of things. I mean, like the Department of Defense recently made like a $3 billion accounting error when it sent too much military aid to Ukraine. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when you put it that way, it's not a lot. of. I mean, it isn't a lot of money in the grand scheme of things, is it? Mm-hmm, yeah. But the sovereignty issue is also important. Nobody has a responsibility to map 50% of the planet. So that means it really falls down to the military who has, you know, national security priorities for mapping the ocean, or it falls to commercial and corporate corporations like um, we're doing fiber optic cables or deep sea mining. Those groups are not particularly inclined to share those maps for science. Right. I mean, I, I suspect there's probably more of, of the deep sea map than we know. Is that is that is that a logical conclusion? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So this was like a conspiracy theory that was sort of floating around throughout while I was reporting this book. And every time I had a chance to talk to somebody in the military or who had some sort of Navy background, I would ask this question. I would say, you know, like, what's in the vaults? Tell me what we have not mapped. And no one would sort of give a, a specific answer. Everybody was, you know, a pretty good soldier. And uh, didn't say what these vaults held. But yeah, definitely the most developed countries in the world, like the US, Russia, China, Britain, they probably have more maps than they're letting on. But at the same time, ocean mappers who really study this issue say, even if all those countries were hoarding all these maps, there's still a lot of seafloor that we haven't mapped. So we definitely haven't got to all of it, but there's more out there than we know. And you've mentioned, too, that uh, countries tend to be quite secretive about what they've mapped in what are considered their own territorial waters, right? Yep. Yep, absolutely. So I think the U.S. is probably the only country that is really uh, sharing maps unconditionally. But a lot of countries sort of hoard their maps. You know, it's kind of a loss of control issue. They're worried about giving these maps out and what people are going to do with them. And so this organization, CBID 2030, that's trying to map the the seafloor by the end of the decade they're really they're really challenged on that point they have to spend a lot of time kind of convincing countries to share maps with them and you know they try and do that as best as they can but the the thing is is that maps are still considered you know kind of like a national security consideration and so it's it's really hard to get people to share one always thinks of space exploration as being very much an organized thing, you know, the NASA's and, and the Canadian Space Agency and, and you know, and the, and the many other, the few others out there that do this. And it's all very organized and publicized and you know when they're launching and so on. Uh, the, the deep sea feels like, and, and even as your book describes it, feels like a much more sort of motley crew of, of people out there. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So people who are in ocean mapping, um, one of the hardest things to write about this book was that ocean mappers and people who are in ocean mapping are sort of all over the world. And, you know, they're like, there's ship captains out there. There's people who are involved with the military. There's people who are involved on with science. And so it's, it's really hard to get everybody into one space and just make this map. And they all have different priorities. And space, on the other hand, is often thought of, you know, it kind of transcends all the politics of Earth. And it's sort of, you know, it's out there, it's far away, we can all come together for this humanitarian kind of goal. And the ocean just doesn't inspire that sort of fellow feeling with each other. We're all sort of out to kind of map our our own little plot of the world. 
Laura, when one thinks of, of knowledge, you know, it could be used for good and evil. I know that's very simplistic, very Marvel comic sounding. Uh, but when it comes to to charting the world's oceans, uh, what are some of the clearly there are some real altruistic reasons to do it. And I'm sure there are some fears about it, too, because, you know, it is unexplored to some extent. And there's a lot of potentially a lot of money to be made down there. Yeah, you're 100 percent right. I mean, in general, most people have kind of thought of ocean mapping as being useful for safe navigation, you know, moving a ship from port A to port B. Um, but what I discovered while I was ma- writing this book is that um, ocean mapping is just so much bigger than that. There's uh, a lot of human history still down there, sunken on the continental shelves. There's a lot of um, fascinating mysteries still to solve. Um, perhaps the greatest mystery of all time is still down there on the seafloor, which is, you know, where did life begin? We know it started somewhere on the seafloor at a hydrothermal vent, but we've got some we've got some good candidates. Like there's the lost city in the Atlantic, um, which is sort of this place of kind of spiraling hydrothermal vents that are going up meters from the seafloor. But recently, the lost city in the Atlantic was actually slated as a prospective mining site. Right. So um, we may end up destroying this critical part of understanding humanity's origin story if we don't sort of map and protect and understand this part of the planet better. Yeah, I, I was thinking Amelia Earhart and MH370, <laughs> Malaysian Airlines 370. I guess there are much bigger and more profound mysteries out there in the sea as well. The mining one is interesting because you've written about that separately as well in an op-ed for the Globe and Mail. That's that's an interesting one because clearly there is a push to try to do it, not a huge one. And a lot of countries have said no. Uh, but where are we at with it? And, 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 and what does the future look like, the immediate future look like for deep sea mining? Right. So this is a really critical issue that's going to come up in the next you know, month or so. There's a rule that's about to expire that would per- sort of open the international seafloor to deep sea mining. And there's a, a Canadian company at the forefront of that that's sort of been pushing for deep sea mining for quite some time. And so, so yeah, so there's a, going to be a lot of government delegates, a lot of nonprofit groups who are going to be gathering in Jamaica very soon at the International Seabed Authority, which is the regulator of deep sea mining. And they're going to be discussing whether the regulations are enough for the industry to go ahead or not. And yeah, as I mentioned, there's this Canadian company, the Meadows Company, that is really at the forefront. They're out of Vancouver. And, you know, they very much need deep sea mining to go ahead because they've had a couple of um, serious setbacks recently. As you mentioned, there's a bunch of countries that have come out against deep sea mining. So we've had France and Germany who have um, want to put a pause on developing deep sea mining. There's also a lot of corporations like Google and Samsung and Volkswagen and BMW who say they're not going to use these minerals. So where is the market for this? Canada so far has been kind of strangely silent on this. They have said that they'll ban domestic mining in, in, their, in their domestic waters. But they haven't said anything yet about international waters, which is really where a lot of the pressure is building right now. I think it would be amazing if Canada sort of aligned itself with these other corporations and government and and came out clearly and said, you know, we need to study this area a little bit more. We need to find out more about the deep sea environment and figure out, you know, whether mining it is worth it or not. Because we talk about mining in space and one thinks, well... You know, it must be equally attractive to try to mine and challenging, but equally attractive to try to figure out what lies in the deep sea as well. And and with that, I'm sure comes those who say there are reasons to do it and many who say there are reasons why we absolutely should. 
Yes, absolutely. So the deep sea miners, their points tend to be that we need to have these metals, primarily for electric vehicle batteries, but also for other things like sustainable tech. So things like wood turbines or electronics. They also tend to point out that uh, deep sea mining, a new source of metals would help end destructive mining practices on land. So nickel mines are really polluting in equatorial countries like Indonesia. Um, cobalt mining is, uh, you know, human rights atrocity in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where they have child laborers working in mines. But we're not exactly clear how critical these metals are going to be. And, you know, the metals market is evolving very rapidly. Cobalt and nickel, which is what they're trying to get out of the deep sea, might not be as relevant as we think. Batteries are moving more towards other alternatives. And then at the same time, there's no guarantee that deep sea mining would shut down terrestrial mining. So there's a risk that we would have um, mines on land and mines under the water, and we would be, um, you know, polluting both. Laura, that's one of the chapters in your book. What did you walk away with from this adventure of yours that started off with, we know, why do we know so little about this? Uh, what did you emerge? You, you, you know, you spent some time on a research uh, a vessel and so forth. What did you walk away with? Yeah, exactly. I mean, thanks so much for saying that, because, you know, deep sea mining is really just a small pocket of what is a really fascinating world down there. I mean, the thing that I really walked away from is that the seafloor is sort of bigger and bolder and more extreme than anything that we find on land. You know, the deepest trenches are down there. You know, they're deeper than Mount Everest is high. There's volcanic eruptions. You know, the biggest uh, waterfall is underwater. It's not in Venezuela. You know, these are just incredible features that are down there on the seafloor. And I really came away from this kind of thinking that the quest to map the seafloor, there's so many mysteries down there that we still have to solve that, you know, figuring out what's down there and mapping it is really not just a quest to map the seafloor. It's also just a quest to understand ourselves and our home. Well, Laura, congratulations on the book. It's called The uh, it's called uh, the Deepest Map, the High Stakes Race to Chart the World's Oceans. It's out on July the 11th. Thanks so much. Thank you. Hey, Bobby. I've been evicted. What do you mean? The Impressionist Gallery. Closed for cleaning. Cleaning? Yeah. Doing it right now. Ed, uh, lend me a hand here for a minute. Currently. A clip there from the Thomas Crown Affair. I don't know why I used the Pierce Bronston one instead of the Steve McQueen one. But anyway, it sort of puts art theft into that strange place in our uh, in our lexicon that it has always occupied, which is somehow kind of a distinguished form of thievery, uh, a different kind of crime from bank robberies and the like, more sophisticated, somehow less seedy, more unusual. And that couldn't be more true than the very true story of Stefan Breitweiser. Starting back in 1995, when he was just in his early 20s and continuing until he was arrested in 2001, the Frenchman admitted to stealing some 300 works of art and other exhibits from some 200 different places. One theft every 12 days, if you do the math, in just an incredible rate. His MO was just as unique, no weapons, no violence, always during opening hours. And his unique M.O. appears to have fed a unique motive. He did not try to sell any of the items he stole, instead stashing what was estimated to be as much as $2 billion. It's not really me with these things. It's hard to put a real figure on it. But, you know, lots of invaluable stuff 
in attic rooms he shared with his girlfriend and sometimes accomplice, or often accomplice, I guess, and Catherine Klankhaus. Again, he never sold what he stole. Instead, he claimed to be fascinated by the beauty of what he took. Um, and that's just teeing up the story. It comes with a lot more incredible twists and turns. Uh, it, it's one of those stories that's stranger than fiction, to be honest. But it is the subject of a new book called The Art Thief, a true story of love, crime, and a dangerous obsession by journalist and best-selling author Michael Finkel, whose previous works include True, um, true Story, Murder Memoir Mea Culpa, uh, which was nominated for an Edgar back in 2006, and the more recent The Stranger in the Woods. And Michael Finkel joins me now. Thanks so much for your time. Ben, thanks for having me on. This is such, I mean, I, I knew a little bit about the story, but when I picked up your book, it, it really reads like fiction and it, because it's so such a strange story. How did you come across it? Yeah, Ben, I was living in France and reading a lot in the French media and Stefan Breitweiser is somewhat well known in Europe, but uh, completely unknown in North America. And, I, you know, this is, as you were just saying in the introduction, it's like pure journalistic catnip. I mean, you have an extraordinary prolific thief who stole without violence for the love of art, or so it seemed. And it took, God, I'm almost ashamed to admit, it took 11 years to finish this project from start to finish. He's a Breitweiser for obvious reasons. He's tentative about talking to the press. He's guilty of all these crimes. I've, I started out writing him letters, which progressed to a lunch meeting. And finally, he decided I was trustworthy enough to allow him to interview him. And we sat for more than 40 hours. And then even crazier, I'm sure we'll talk about it. He took me to yeah. some of the museums from which he stole, museums that he's banned from visiting. And he wore disguises. And it was some of the most insane and interesting uh, experiences of my journalistic career. Yeah, I, I mean, it, he's one of those strange characters when you read it, because especially through your book, and I gather as an author, you struggled with this as well, because I think it comes off the page, that you kind of love and hate him all at once. Like, there's something about him that's sort of noble and quirky and odd. At the same time, he's just kind of a tasteful kleptomaniac, really, <laughs> if you think about it. I mean, I'm glad you said that. As I said, I've spent more than a decade on this project. And to this day, I'm not exactly sure how I feel about Breitweiser. And I really, you know... I can't tell you whether the book is any good, but the story is certainly uh, one of the most insane ones I've ever encountered. And I really hope that I portrayed Breitweiser in a way that the reader, him or herself, can decide whether or not this guy is odious, distasteful, somewhat heroic, some combination of all of them, sort of understandable, completely baffling. And I went from you know, one feeling to the other about him as the story progressed. And he started telling me about crime after crime after crime. And there's also, of course, a love story shot through the middle of it. You mentioned that his girlfriend, Anne-Catherine, was not, not just his girlfriend, was also his accomplice. And I'm always imagining these attic rooms. So Breitweiser himself was unemployed. His, his full-time job was basically stealing art. He lived in his mother's attic like a complete you know uh loaf about yeah, and uh, basement video know. games but he yeah instead of basement <laughs> video games he was stealing priceless art yeah exactly and hanging them up in the room and truly did it for the sort of love and obsession uh that he had and eventually he and his girlfriend were i mean i've seen home videos that they took when the room was at its maximum um a glory splendor and it was like living inside of a treasure chest quite extraordinary 
Yeah, and looking at what he took too. I mean, this is this was some. I mean, these. I guess part of it was it wasn't like he was in the Louvre or something. So we didn't hear about it as much. But he took advantage of. And I think if anyone's been to Europe, you know, there's sort of this vast network of smaller places with historic stuff in them, because the place is crawling with history. And I suppose he took advantage of that because, in some ways, a lot of the places he was taking from were sort of smaller places, places that were kind of parts of little communities, things that people were proud of. So in that sense. This was not a victimless crime. Far from it. Yeah, I mean, I speak sometimes with incredulity about St Stefan Breitweiser, but obviously what he did was was terrible. I mean, I'm a museum goer and have been since uh, since childhood. You know, uh, we, I think, Ben, you and I could probably talk about the problems of modern society from now until next, you know, next year. But one of the great um, joys of modern society is that we have public museums. We can go, we don't have to be a billionaire to go see some of the most valuable works in the world. And I don't think museum curators like to talk about this too much, but really the mission of a museum is to allow a visitor to be as close, to commune as thoroughly with a work of art as possible and unencumbered. Like we don't want bars in front of our paintings. We don't want things locked behind vaults. And so there is a little bit of public trust going on. And as you mentioned, some of the smaller, more parochial museums are really quite extraordinarily unprotected. And Breitweiser took advantage of this. And he also was able to get away with this because he stole from seven different countries. He switched between large museums and small, between galleries and museums and auctions and art fairs and, and uh, private showings. And so was able to avoid and evade the police for the better part of a decade. And by his description, motivated, and, and you mentioned something called Stendhal's, uh, you know, Stendhal's theory, um, Stendhal's phenomenon, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the name wrong, but I remember what it was about, was this sort of almost, um, you know, this almost um, messianic or messianic is the wrong, but this is rapture that you get when you see a piece, a work of art that, that you like. And this was what, ha what happened to him. He'd almost become obsessed with something that he saw and think, I need that. And then he, that would be his motive. Yeah, you're referring to Stendhal syndrome, named after the French writer Stendhal, who mm -hmm. became over, was overcome with art while visiting Florence in the uh, mid-19th century. I think that, Ben, I think all of us are blown away by something that's beautiful. For me, I live in the mountains of Utah. It might be... Um, a sunset in the mountains. Uh, I love the, when I see the Northern lights, I'm sort of overcome. Others are overcome with attraction to uh, a lover, someone we're attracted to or something. All of us, when we close our eyes and think of what's the most beautiful thing, we have something and it's different in everybody. For Stefan Breitweiser, it was specifically Northern European art of the Renaissance period and early Baroque, which is 16th and 17th century. And I witnessed this in person. You know, of course, when someone's talking to a journalist, they always want to put their best face forward. And I do want to emphasize that as crazy as this, as this story sounds, it's 100% true, thoroughly fact-checked. If I was 99% sure of something, I didn't put it in the book. I saw Breitweiser literally, like, he would change his whole face, his whole body, his whole mien would change when he encountered a work of art that captivated and he called it in french a coup de corps a hit to the heart right blow to the heart and he unlike almost all of us i think when you go to museum ben i don't know if you're anything like me but you'll you know when my wife and i visit a museum often we'll tap each other on the shoulder and say like oh wouldn't that just look great over the fireplace i mean uh, yeah who wouldn't want a picasso there and we all have that thought but breitweiser couldn't let that thought go and i'm sure we'll get into this his methods of stealing 
were ingenious and while he's not a hero, he's someone you can sort of like nod to. You mentioned the Thomas Crown Affair, a fictitious thief, of course, the Thomas Crown Affair. And this is reality. But he stole in amazingly ingenious and often spontaneously created ways. Yeah, I mean, his ability to steal. I mean, there's no denying that he was an incredibly able thief, uh, considering where he was doing it while museums, where people were there, while security was walking around, usually armed with nothing more than a Swiss army knife. I mean, his ability to steal, if, if, if that is to be admired, he is admirable. Yeah, I know. I'm not sure if it's to be admired, but it is to be sort of, yeah, I was astonished. I mean, for example, like you look at a display case in a museum, these are locked with quite powerful modern locks. There's no way you can pick a lock. Breitweiser avoided all of that. He, he sometimes could just think of the simplest things he had, as you mentioned, a Swiss army knife. That is the only tool he needed to steal most of the works of art. He could, uh, a display case is sealed at the corners with silicone glue. All he had to do was take the sharpest blade of his Swiss army knife and using like a surgeon's cut, cut vertically and horizontally along the seals, he could pull apart the panels just enough to wriggle his hand through and steal objects. They had to be on the small side, but he stole priceless works of ivory, silver, gold, mother of pearl. He would feed them out to the gap that he had created in the box, push the panels together. It looked like it hadn't been touched. The lock never was moved the entire time. And often he would do this whole thievery in between guard visits. He would time it down to the second. Using his girlfriend as a lookout, she would cough, <coughs> something like that, when a guard was approaching. And he would never run out of a museum. He would walk out of a museum. And once in a while, like shockingly, when he thought there were guards around and might be suspicious, they actually, he and his girlfriend, like ate at the museum cafe with stolen yeah. works on them. Why would anyone do that? And I asked them that, of course. And he said, well, I, w I did that because that is something that an art thief would never do. Imagine the police running in. Are they going to check the people slowly eating lunch first? No. Those are the people they're not going to suspect. He was able to evade and avoid the, the detectives that were after him by the most simple yet psychologically astute methods. Michael, he does get caught, obviously, and, and I guess we, we, we should kind of, we don't have a ton of time, but I don't know if this gives away too much from the book, and I'll let you explain as much as you want, but at, in the end, this love of art somehow comes back to bite him, right? It's, uh, there's not a happy ending to a lot of the artwork in this one. Right. Like any great Icarus story, you know, there's going to be a big crash and Brightweiser in the history of art. There's been almost no one who's stolen from more museums. In fact, no one even close to the number of museums. So the, the quantity, the sheer value of this, he soared higher and more daringly than any art thief. But when it came, you're right, nobody can get away with crimes for long. I, I think you mentioned the statistic, which, you know, just blows my mind. One theft every 12 days on average for more than seven years. And he, he had some of the most extreme close calls you can imagine, all, of course, detailed in the book. But when he finally was caught and finally made a mistake, as even the most, uh, per, you know, even the most accomplished thief will do, the crash was tremendous. And everything in Breitweiser's life falls apart. You know, he had this love affair with his girlfriend and accomplice. He was, you know, living in a room that re resembled a treasure chest. And again, I, you know, I, I love some of the twists and turns in this story. And I will say that I think that the ending is unguessably traumatic 
and what happens to the art. Let's leave a little bit for the readers to we'll leave discover it the reader on their sure. own. But it, it, it is a tremendous crash that happens. It is. And, and because you spent time with him, what was so fascinating, and I hope this doesn't give away much either, but he certainly is an unrepentant. He's, an unre- he's, some, he's somewhat repentant, but not really. And uh, you kind of wrap up where he ends up getting caught doing this again, even after he's arrested and jailed and let back out. He continues to sort of steal stuff. You know, Ben, I was, uh, I spent a lot of time with Breitweiser and I think you're right. In the end, he, you know, it was sort of a little bit sad towards, you know, the late part of his career after he's caught once, he looked at me one time and he said, Mike, I think that I'm really only good at one thing in the world. And that thing is stealing art. And he really, you know, every part of him was, you know, filled, you know, his, his love of art and his, you know, his skill at stealing were all tipped over into the realm of obsession and he could not stop himself. And you're right. The, the end of his life has been, or the, you know, he's, he's in his fifties right now. So still fairly young, but I think that the moment he's released from the penal system and he's still in trouble in France, um, I think he's the type of person that he'll drive by a museum and find himself tugging the wheel almost uncontrollably and find himself parking the car you know, the way he got into museums was the most classic way, which is he walked in the front door, he bought a ticket, always in cash, don't use a credit card, that's really gives yourself away. I think that uh, the siren song of a museum is going to call to him for the rest of his life. And I don't know if he's ever going to be able to avoid stealing more art. Yeah. And and I guess as, as, as a last word, you know, there's so much to take away from this because he is such an interesting character, that it's such an interesting story to read. And I feel like you sort of, you see where obsession tips over, right? Where something, where a love of something tips over to something far more bizarre and unfortunate. And I feel like that's kind of the message that comes out of this. And that's my interpretation. Obviously, I didn't write the book. So, yes. Right. One of the things that really I took away from my whole 11 years working on this, not only is it just like an interesting story about an obsessed and a very successful thief, he actually, in this strange sort of way, taught me a new way of how to see art. He had a very sort of child mind. He was extremely intelligent and well-read and like art professor level of knowledge. But when he saw a work of art that really appealed to him, he was like purely going on emotions. And I mentioned earlier in our conversation, and thanks for all these great questions, you know, he, we went into art museums together and he had this just wonderful way of describing the feelings that overcame him. You know, when when you read art books or you listen to professors or tour guides, they're always talking about symbolism and you know form and all these things. He just went with pure emotion, overwhelmed with color and feeling, and sort of changed the way that I experience museums and art. And I'm hoping, besides a real barn burner of a story about a thief, that readers would also, after finishing the book, feel that they have a different relationship with art. And the next time they go to a museum, they're going to experience art in a new way. So there was some sort of personal and you know, some, something to be gained out of this sort of rise and fall and tragic story of uh, right. Oh, Michael Finkel, thanks so much for sharing, sharing the story with me tonight. It's a great book. I highly recommend it. So much fun to talk to you. Thanks, Ben. It's been an interesting week in politics. Olivia Chow, of course, won the Toronto mayoralty election. And she is, you know, she had a pretty successful political career of her own. But she is, of course, um, you know, also remembered as being uh, the widow of the late Jack Layton, who was NDP leader and leader of the opposition uh, for quite a while or for a while and back in the in the late about 10, 10, 11 years ago. And it was a journalist in, in, in Vancouver who pointed out that, you know, the mayor of Toronto is best known for being uh, the wife or the widow of Jack Layton, uh, the premier of Ontario. 
Ontario is best known for being the brother of Rob Ford, and the Prime Minister uh, is the son of Pierre Elliott Trudeau. So we have this sort of, there's this sort of, this insularity with who gets to become leaders in this country. And it's one of the many issues that my next guest, Tristan Hopper, who's a reporter and columnist at the National Post, had looked for looked uh, at this last week or so. Uh, the whole idea of nepotism babies, or nepo babies, as the term goes, it's been talked about a lot in the celebrity context, maybe not as much in the political context. Uh, Tristan, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Tell me about this Nepo baby thing, because I'm hearing a lot of it, but in, you know, in relation to like the way Hollywood works, where everyone's, you know, everyone famous has a daughter or, or a son who also becomes famous, right? Yeah, I was just writing about how everybody in Canadian politics is sort of incestuous and related. And then my editor was like, hey, Nepo, Nepo babies is uh, it's, you know, it's doing really good on the Googles. So you got to throw in this uh, SEO enabled search term. So this is a much hipper term than I would normally use, but. Uh, this has been sort of an interest of mine uh, going way back. Uh, somewhere in some file, I've got this big, this like insane, beautiful mind like card that I put together. It's just, like wall hanging, and it's just uh, all these n- major names in Canadian politics just sort of linked together, and how everyone is related. Because there's some weird ones. Uh, I mean, just spend some time on Wikipedia, and you go to the biography of just a famous Canadian. And then in the intro, there'll be some weird familial connection. Uh, They have one of my favorites, uh, Leslie Nielsen, of course, his brother was the deputy prime minister. Uh, And then Norm MacDonald, uh, his brother, uh, senior correspondent with uh, uh, CBC. So basically, most well-known Canadians or uh, uh, Kiefer Sutherland uh, is related to Tommy Douglas. Mm -hmm. You have all these Canadians known for other things. And it's like, oh, yeah, I've got a a cousin who was like, you know, premier of New Brunswick or something. Yeah, it always feels like it's sort of what if you had a big party that all these people would show up and they would all know each other. <laughs> that was kind of the yeah. There was a, the... there was a, I forget the name of the it's a, it was a U.S. comedy podcast. And whenever they had a Canadian on, they would say, "Do you have you know do you have a like a brother who's commissioner of the RCMP or something?" And most of the times uh, there was some weird connection. They'd be able to mention a member of their family who did have a high up position in the Department of Foreign Affairs or police police, police or something. Uh, so yeah, there it's this comes up a lot. Um, a, a tremendous amount of our ruling class um, is people who are related to other politicians or were born to politicians. Um, one of the most fascinating things this actually didn't make it into the story uh, was that Trudeau's cabinet has no less than three members, uh, three people who he counted as friends before entering politics. So yeah, most cabinets, prime ministers are going to appoint people that they were friends with. Um, as a result of their political life. Uh, but these are three people who Trudeau knew before he was even considering entering politics. I mean, uh, as recently as 2007, if people asked, are you getting into politics? He'd say, oh, I'm not so sure. I think I'm just going to, you know, kind of stick a private life. So imagine you're 25 years old and you're hanging around with your your friends, whoever they may be. I'm picturing, you know, a bunch of BCers hanging around a campfire. And you're saying three of these people, half of this campfire... Um, are eventually going to decide, oh, let's run for politics. Let, we'll get elected as MPs on the first try, all of them, and then we'll all be sitting in cabinet together making you know, massive decisions that fundamentally affect the lives of millions. So I often yeah, report so- on how our higher-ups don't seem to be tremendously in touch with the average Canadian, and that makes total sense. If three of your childhood friends just happened to become liberal MPs and you appointed them to cabinet, th- those are really unusual circumstances, and you may not have the most grounded perspective. 
Yeah, sitting around making s'mores. You know, hey, do you know anything about tourism? You know, that kind of, that kind of thing. Yeah, and uh, none I'm of trying them. To, I'm trying to remember not, which it's ones. It's not like they were like, oh, they? you know, one of these days I'm going to run for politics. All of them were like, yeah. sometimes some of them had some familial connections. They're like, yeah, that might be a good idea. And then, boom, I'm a politician and I'm a minister. Yeah, I'm trying to remember who those would be. I'm thinking, uh, well, who am I thinking? Uh, well, I'm trying to remember the three names because I should know this. Uh, Mark, Miller, this. Uh, Mark, Mark Miller. Mark Miller and yeah. Seamus O'Regan. We're both in Trudeau's wedding party. And then Dominic LeBlanc, um, who was Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs, um, he he actually, he's the son of a governor general. um, So he was part of the same kind of Ottawa milieu that Trudeau grew up in. Um, So he was, he babysat um, the Trudeau kids in the 1970s. And then, so they've known each other socially ever since. I have a bit of a theory about this, and you can correct me if you think it's wrong, and it's probably super, because I grew up in Montreal, right? So I went to university at McGill at the same time as Justin Trudeau did, so I knew him uh, to a certain extent. And what I found is over the years, a lot of very ambitious people used to go out of their way to befriend, to befriend him because they thought, he's Justin Trudeau. And, you know, Pierre, oh, I, of course, Oh, yeah, occupied, yeah, because you, 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 know, know, so you might get to bump, bump shoulders with the Yeah, there was a bit of a chicken yeah, and right. egg thing going on there, too, a little bit, and not, not an entire defense of, of the prime minister, but there was a bit of a chicken and egg thing going on. People were sort of that makes sense. Well, it also just, yeah. yeah it, it also explains why uh i mean one thing that's characteristic of his government is he keeps wandering into scandals where you know the aga khan takes flies him to an island and he's like i didn't yeah. know there was anything wrong with that uh, because he's lived in his entire life um where sort of rich influential uh bright people are sort of surrounding him and being really 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 nice to him um yeah. so yeah, yeah, yeah. me and the Aga Khan, like, we're buddies, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know. I'm not tremendously good looking and I'm I'm I you know, kind of mutter to myself a lot of the time. So um this is a completely foreign experience to me. I I do not generally have people approaching me and being nice to me for no reason. I wonder though that as he spends longer and longer in power that 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 if that hasn't exacerbated the, his sort of the sense that he's a bit out of touch uh that he was already a bit out of touch you know oh, yeah they already they always i mean yeah. this is this is a pattern i think i brought this up in your show before this is what we do to prime ministers we take them uh they enter i, I you know when they come into office they're going to shake things up uh you know they, they bring in all this legislation about transparency and doing things differently and by the end, they're embittered. They stop making public appearances. You know, they've, they've gotten rid of all their ambitious cabinet ministers. It's just a bunch of yes men. Um, they don't give press conferences. That, that always happens. Um, but, yeah, yeah it's, it's happening. When you start with someone who's already kind of that way, um, yeah, we have a much more egregious version of it at the tail end. At the same time, he still seems like even he still seems to be willing to put himself out there and say what he believes in and so on. So I, I suppose, again, it's kind of a chicken or an egg argument because he grew up around this sort of removed princely kind of environment. He's still willing to put himself out there and say, well, you know, I'm Justin Trudeau. Why don't you hear me? You want to hear what I have to say yet again. Um, so I don't know whether he does the bitter remove thing, but he does seem yeah. to have done a bit of the I, I, I don't really know what's going on in the world anymore thing. Quite, you know, the hotel rooms always, you know, again, like the hotel room thing the, the london hotel room thing i know everyone made a lot of hay out of it it seemed people thought it was really unfair but i'm like you know people at home are going to pounce on you if you do this and you stay in the i mean you would struggle to find a more expensive hotel room in london than the one he, st- he stayed in for the queen's yeah funeral. or i'm, I'm going to jet off to a beach on you know the first uh, truth and reconciliation day so there, there are a number of those uh yeah they, they don't even make sense to his, his, his inner circle until you start looking things up like this, like three three of the childhood friends are somehow in cabinet. Um, so yeah. the more the more little tidbits I learn like that, I'm like, well, I can 
kind of see why he would think that's okay. And he's completely baffled when he hires um, someone like David Johnson, who's basically a family friend, to investigate his own government. People think that's controversial. Um, So, you know, given the benefit of the doubt, he, he, he could very well be innocent in all this and doesn't understand it's wrong. It does have a bit of a of a like a you know it does have a bit of a British ruling class feel about it, doesn't it? Sometimes you sort of like mm, oh, yeah, I, I, I saw so and so at the club the other night. He's going to look into this this uh, interference thing for us. You know, it's like what are you talking about? Why would you do that? Yeah, uh, although the, the one thing I always thought uh, the, the the key difference between sort of our Conservative Party and the, the UK Conservative Party is every once in a while. Um, in a couple of years, you'll have a UK conservative who just goes on to, off on some cab driver and says he's a lower class and you're scum and I'm, you know, highborn. Um, we don't really have that problem uh, in Canada. Yeah, no. I mean, maybe give it another couple of hundred years, and we'll develop <laughs> our own class system. Tristan Hopper, reporter and columnist for the National Post, joins me now. We've been talking about uh, nepotism babies and all the sort of inner workings and connections that exist right now in Ottawa between the prime minister and others as well. You know how you don't have to look too far back in that family tree. The, the degrees of separation are, are often few between politicians sometimes and those who've, uh, who've been politicians before them. Uh, Tristan, you reported on something interesting this week about politicians and housing and how we've created a bit of a, a divide these days between those who own, those who don't. And clearly, if you own a home or you own more than one home and the value of them has been going up, you might be a little reluctant to turn off the tap. And it turns out that a lot of politicians own property and quite a bit of it. Yeah, which I, I guess is always been the case. Uh, like once upon a time, you had to own property to sit in the Senate. I actually think you still do. Um, yes, the, the yes, you do. In the US, but I think to sit in our Senate, yeah, you have to own property in the uh, region that you represent. So it makes total sense that yeah, you probably own your own home and especially the landlord. Uh, but I think that may be contributing to, I mean, a bunch of millennials sit around, uh, particularly sort of, you know, my mid-30s. We're like, hey, we're making good money. We've got things together. And there's no chance at all I could ever possibly buy a house. Um, why doesn't anybody care? This seems to be a major crisis uh, with the country. And then you don't really see the attention paid to it uh, that you might expect uh, for something like that. And, um, yeah, one of the reasons might be um, that all of our political classes uh, have money. So I don't think it's like, you know, I need to sort of, you know, keep this engineered bubble going uh, to sort of, keep my rates high. I don't think it's that evil. Potentially, it isn't. Okay. No, yeah, but, probably um, not. But I think this is a, a sentiment I encounter often. Um, it's this idea that you bought a house in the 80s for like nothing, and now it's worth a million dollars. And, uh, you know, the much more tempting way to see that is that you're a financial genius and you made money through good real estate investments. Not that there were a bunch of economic forces that severely disadvantaged a bunch of other people to your personal advantage. That's an unpleasant thing to think about, so obviously you're going to go with the former. So, um, yeah, it would be easy to think, think that a lot of our political classes are thinking, well, I made some good real estate investments, and if you work hard like I did, you'll be able to get into the property market. If, I mean, that's something I felt for my own parents um, until you sort of right. break down the numbers and say, no, 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 no. If, if I you know, drop everything, have zero expenses somehow, live under a bridge, and all of my income goes towards a down payment, I can afford a teardown in 25 years. Like the, the yeah, economic if you're lucky. Work. 
If you're lucky, yeah. <laughs> if you're lucky, I, I was, I was, what, the moment I saw this story, I thought of you, Tristan. So, um, BC, where we are, uh, this week announced that, uh, come September, they're going to drop letter grades for K through grade nine, and they're going to replace them with something else. <laughs> they're going to replace them with, with these, these different categories. And, and, and they're, I mean, we talked about it a bit on the last, last night, and of course, everyone, everyone, every listener thought it was a terrible idea. I think, especially when I shared what those other um, what those other categories are. So instead of getting an A, a B, or a C, or or an F, you're, you're going to get emerging, developing, proficient, and extending are the new grades. And yeah. I guess yeah, there's a, you know there's a yeah. Yeah, I guess there was, you know, there's a, there's a reason to do this. When they when they surveyed people, everyone hated it, but they did it anyway. Uh, what do you make of it? I mean, you, you're you're gonna you're gonna be dealing with this. What, what interested me uh, is that they did they put out a survey two years ago where they asked people like, we have this idea to get rid of letter grades and replace it with the scale that doesn't make sense, and they asked teachers, parents, and uh, students what they thought about it. And everyone hated it um, for a variety of reasons. It, you know, I've heard teachers say, well, we we kind of liked the idea, but the implementation. Um, there wasn't enough sort of guidelines, so that's, that's what we didn't like. But students hated it at a rate of like 83%. And I could sort of see that uh, if I can sort of go off on a very quick tangent. Um, sure. I'm not a religious By person, all means. but every once in a while uh, when I have a Sunday morning skill, I'll go to a church. And one thing I've noticed is that the more sort of hard-line churches, uh, so you're a traditional old, old-style Catholic church or whatever, um, those are packed every Sunday morning. The one where it's like, oh yeah, you gotta you gotta get baptized, you gotta come to confession, you gotta do stuff to come here. Yeah, rules are those rules. Ones, rules are rules. Yeah, those yeah. ones have no problem getting people in. And then all the United churches, where it's like, oh yeah, you don't even need to put shoes on here. This is fine. Uh, there's a you know there's a craft beer tap over there that's free. Um, those are struggling uh, to keep anybody in the pews. Those had like four or five. So people, um, particularly now in the year 2023, I think they sort of crave. Um, structure and rules. So I think, yeah, you could, I think that's why maybe you're seeing 80% of students are saying, uh, okay, I already have to suffer through all the other stuff in school. Can you at least just, you know, give me a straightforward answer on how well I'm doing? Yeah, that, I, I was surprised that, 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 um, that students hated it. I mean, everyone sort of said, oh, they're going to be so happy because they're going to have these sort of wishy-washy grade structures. Now, I should preface this by, and I said this last night, the, the primary school I went to in, in Quebec uh, was so progressive, and this was a thing at the time. We as students got to make up our own report. We graded ourselves. That's how, that's how, that's how I, I highly yeah, do not yeah. recommend. I don't I, recommend I'm, that I'm at all. I'm reminded of when my grandma was in an old folks home, uh, they had some, a Montessori high school came by. And this Montessori, rather than put on a performance of Bye Bye Birdie or Grease or whatever, they had them write their own musical. So my grandma was telling us, and I thought it was going to be some story about some inspiring thing about how the kids put together this musical, and they thrived in new ways. And she said, oh, my grandma had some tolerance for some terrible dinner theater. I mean, she's seen some of the worst performing arts that has ever existed. And she said, this is the worst thing she ever saw. She said, these, these teams sucked. They needed guidance. Uh, it was awful. Um, they, they needed structure and someone to tell them what was wrong and what wasn't. So I, there's got to be someone in the cast who realized that they were just embarrassing themselves and sort of you know, nonagenarians. So I think, yeah, I, I, I bet, I try not to talk to teens, but I bet uh, you, would, you would get a sentiment that they, they kind of want people to tell them what to do sometimes. 
Yeah, and sometimes, as we all know, sometimes when you came home with that, you know, I mean, we we got we had percentage grades in Quebec, so nothing like a like a sixty two in math to kind of wake you up and think, oh, right, all your friends are talking about their nineties, and you've got, yeah, I kind of I kind of loafed off on this one. I better pull up my socks, right? Whereas if you came home and said, hey, Dad, I got a developing, he'd be like, yeah, whatever, good for you, yeah, right? So I think that's part of the issue. Exactly. We, so, we, I mean, we, the curriculum we, is already vague enough. Um, and now they're like, oh, yeah, our metric for even measuring the curriculum, that's, that's not going to be vague. So there's absolutely nothing to grab onto. You just go to a building and sort of exist there until you leave at grade 12. And, you know, yeah. I don't miss school. I don't miss, I don't miss, I don't miss oh, no, primary I school neither. or high school. I, 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 of all the jobs I've had, um, I, I don't really have, I had nightmares when I was a server, a journalist nightmares sometimes. Um, those go away after I leave the job. Um, I still, Every week, have uh, a nightmare that I didn't get enough grades and I can't graduate. Interesting. Well, so, I hope that yeah, goes away. Well, yeah, you, you pass. You know, it's scarring. Scarring. Yeah. Well, you, you pass. You pass the. You pass the a little more conversation test with flying colors. We're gonna give you a solid. We're gonna give you a solid. I give you a solid. Have the stress of graduating. He should have just <laughs> kind of sat there and you know had math suggested to him until he left. Um, yeah. Well, as I said, you passed you passed the little more conversation test with flying colors. We give you a solid emerging for your performance tonight. Thank you. <laughs> Tristan, thanks so much. Have a great night. You too. In the last half hour, we were talking to National Post reporter Tristan Hopper uh, about many things, including this change that's coming uh, in September to, for a lot of kids in BC, uh, students between kindergarten and grade nine, they won't be getting letter grades anymore. Instead, it'll be a proficiency scale is what they're calling it. So those letter grades are being replaced with terms like emerging, developing, proficient, and extending. If you read into what those actually mean, just to, just so there's no confusion, uh, extending is, and this is going to completely defeat the purpose, but extending is kind of like an A. Proficient is kind of like a B. Developing is kind of like a C. And emerging would be considered struggling down there and sort of the you know the D's and F's that 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 area. Uh, now I'm sure kids will figure that out pretty fast, but it's supposed to uh, create an environment where uh, you know doing away with with this system that's been in place for a very long long time to try to create something uh, perhaps a little less harsh might be the right word, but we'll get into that. The funny thing is, when the Ministry of Education went out to survey more than 4,000 people about this, they put out this 97 page report that was done in 2021. Um, most people really didn't like this idea at all. 69% of people were dissatisfied with the policy for a variety of reasons, by the way. It wasn't all just, it was implementation and so on. And you know who was really dissatisfied? Teachers, 77%. Students, 68%. Um, so what's going on exactly? Well, Global News went to do a story on this the other day, and they spoke with, with grade seven student Kian Shabazz and his mother, Mata Buzari, and they sort of encapsulate what this is all about for those who are opposed to it. I really feel like as if a passion inside of me is um, fading out. I've had a hard time transferring between the two due to the how vague the proficiency scale is. It seems very subjective. The system does not allow for a child's talent to be recognized. The way it's designed, I feel that it puts all kids in the middle. 
Right. And now this has been a pilot project for a while. So there are students out there who've already obviously had these grades. Uh, so is, is this a good idea or is this sort of, uh, sort of a race to the middle, a race to mediocrity? Victor Brar is a professor in the Faculty of Education at the University of British Columbia and an elementary school teacher. So he's well positioned to talk about that. Uh, Victor, thank you so much. Uh, well, good evening to you and to your listeners, Ben. So, so tell me a bit about about uh, about the idea. You know, why why is this being done? Because I know you've explained it in ways that that are that suggest that it's it's not a bad idea, even though people may the first reaction made to it may be a bit negative. So, um, you, we have to go back to uh, the 1940s, uh, post uh, post war. That's when um, uh, uh, mandatory compulsory education becomes law. And uh, you see people moving uh, out of the, the, the single-room schoolhouse and into, uh, into uh, schools with multiple classrooms. And during that time in our history, um, uh, we were, the economy operated according to an industrial model, um, the assembly line, um, the, the Fordian system. And under that system, uh, that system uh, was uh, uh, applied also to education. So it's during that time that you see the emergence of letter grades. Um, and just like we, we, we manufacture cars, uh, uh, letter grades was, uh, was a way to, um, uh, to process students. Now, um, uh, you know, a comment that I would make is that industrial efficiency doesn't necessarily lead to uh, learning effectiveness. So uh, letter grades were introduced in, at that time uh, to sort students. Um, and they've been uh, the, the, the prominent way that uh, we have assessed students and scored students. Um, but the economy has been shifting. Uh, we're, you know, we, we're going in under a huge shift in the economy toward, away from industrialization and, and towards um, a high-tech uh, sector. So therefore, there has to be a, a, a corresponding shift in education as well. Uh, and that change started in, uh, I believe, back in 2015 under the liberal, liberal government. Um, and it's been um, uh, uh, continuing on since 2015. And we've slowly evolved to this stage where um, we've uh, uh, created the, the proficiency standards and, and they're being implemented now. So that's a little bit of a, a quick history on, on what's happened. Yes. Yeah. Where I'm a bit unclear is is having looked at these, it's not so much in the idea that education should evolve, because clearly it has to evolve and schools need to meet the, the demands of the economy. And, you know, and, and there has to be innovation within education as well. I'm just not so clear on, on how, because of the backlash against it, I'm not so clear how replacing letter grading itself with these new uh, categories of grading necessarily accomplishes that. So I'll give you the spirit of, of, of this new, um, the new proficiency scale. With letter grades, um, learning was just, learning was seen as uh, there was a finality to learning. In other words, if you, uh, uh, if you were an A or a B, you were planted into a category um, and, and there was a finality to that learning. But what we know now is that learning is not, it doesn't really have a finality. Learning is viewed as a continuum or a spectrum. So therefore, this new system uh, better situates students on that spectrum. So um, w- uh, rather than um, uh, having uh, learning being seen as an event where under the, uh, the letter grade system, you were given a report three times a year. And, and under that reporting system, um, you, you, you focused on the end result. And that result was given to you three times per year. What this right. new system does is it not only focuses on the end, but it also focuses on the learning in between. So that is the huge difference. In other words, the focus has shifted from the end product 
towards um, the process of learning in between those reports. So right. is- think, were you surprised at all uh, about, about just Victor, about, about just the backlash when it was presented? I mean, often what happens with these things, in my experience, having been in other provinces where, you know, not necessarily with, with education, but with other things, is that they're explained really badly. So the, the sort of the communication around them lands flat and then people react to it in a way because the numbers were pretty the dissatisfaction rate was was pretty pretty extreme and i'll, I'll use percentage grading now but 77 percent of teachers were, didn't really like it very much uh, and a lot of students i gather that has more to do with many other factors that maybe you could explain as well around implementation and so forth i can't comment on that report i haven't read the report that would be better for the ministry to, to comment on. Sure. But what I would say is that I think a lot of the anxiety around this is, as you said, uh, a lack of communication. Uh, I think uh, the, the ministry and uh, a local school boards need to do a much better job at explaining the rationale behind the proficiency scale. I feel that a lot of parents are, are and, and students um, are in the dark as to what is the rationale behind this? Why is there a shift from letter grades to the proficiency scale? And I feel that if they, this was explained properly and it was explained to them that we're, we're more focusing on not just the end result, but the actual process of learning itself. Uh, I think uh, uh, those uh, statistics may change. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I gather once it goes into play, I mean, the proof will be in the pudding, but it has been a pilot project, right, already. There are students out there already undergoing this, right? Yeah, and and, and, and to be fair, I would say that uh, we haven't just arrived at this. There was a um, uh, an assessment format prior to this as well, which was called the BC Performance Standards. So in other words, we've gone from the, the, the jump hasn't just been from letter grades straight to the proficiency scale. We've gone from the letter grades to performance standards. Now, that was uh, in uh, elementary school. And then the next step in this evolution has been the proficiency scale. Uh, it's coming as a little bit of a shock, I suspect, to the uh, high school students because they weren't a part of those performance standards that I referred to earlier. Those were implemented primarily in uh, the elementary stream. Yeah, I mean, so, so what now? I mean, this comes into place in September, um, and you, you'll be you'll be involved. I mean, you teach elementary school, right? So you're going to have to figure this out as well. Has it been? Have the guidelines been been straightforward enough? Are you in a position where you're going to be able to explain this to parents and explain this to students, and then grade accordingly? You know, my experience has been that um, when I've explained the proficiency scale to parents and explained the reasoning behind it, that we're, we're focusing on the process of learning, that learning is, is a, it's a, it's a, continue, it's a, it's a spectrum and that we plot students, um, you know, uh, we're not just focused on the end result, but what this system does is it allows parents to see where their child was, where they currently are, and what they need to do to further their learning. So this, um, this, this proficiency scale, I feel that it provides a lot more insight to parents, uh, providing that that, uh, that rationale, that background context is explained to them. So my experience yeah. has been once I've explained it to my parents, um, uh, they, they see it much differently um, than they do letter grades. 
Victor Brar is with us this half hour. He's a professor in the Faculty of Education at the University of British Columbia and an elementary school teacher. We're talking about this change to the way grading for many students in BC is going to be done come September. So if you're in kindergarten to grade nine, you'll be getting, no longer be getting letter grades, you'll be getting something graded on something called a proficiency scale. Um, Victor, what struck me about reading it, and I spent some time in the corporate world, is how very much this whole idea of proficiency, even the words that are being used, sort of come right out of kind of the, the new age of, of human resources, right? Where employees are graded this way because you're certainly not going to give an employee a D, right? You're going to give them something that sort of encourages them to do better without necessarily, um, you know, making sort of completely, giving them some sort of letter grade that's seen as being unfair these days, which is a bit ironic. Uh, and yet, you know, employees always know what that means. I'm just wondering if kids aren't going to start looking at these grades and sort of reassessing them as A's to D's or F's anyway. I think... Um, there's obviously going to be an initial implementation dip, I suspect. But I think going back to that whole idea of communication, that, uh, you know, the, 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 the point that really needs to be stressed to students and to parents is that we're, we're moving away from quantitative to qualitative descriptive feedback. With, with uh, letter grades, the feedback that students got was often at the, the time that a report card was issued. And right. by that time, it's too late. So now what we're trying to do is we're trying to give students descriptive feedback during um, uh, uh, the, the regular year j- between the report cards. So in yeah. other words, by giving them uh, timely feedback during those times, improve their performance so that by the time that we arrive at the report card, it's more accurate. Right. I, I should have pointed out, I think that's gone from three to five, right? There's five different touch points during the year where, where a student's sort of given an idea of where they're at. Well, there's three uh, uh, three primary uh, report cards, and there's often two intermediary report right. cards. And then during that uh, the year as well, students often do three self-reflections as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I, Victor, I, I went to a grade school in Montreal, a progressive grade school, where we 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 gave ourselves our grades, right? So that was, I mean, I'm not I'm not I'm not opposed to this completely. I just I think it's an interesting how people have sort of reacted to it because it's always interesting when you try to implement something new. I don't recommend give, allowing students to give them their own grades. By the way, I'm sure as an elementary school teacher, you might you might understand that. And just um, going back to uh, the global story where uh, the the parent and the student stressed the idea. Of, of subjectivity. To that, I would argue that all grading to some point is, is subjective. I mean, even in a, 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 a subject such as a math, which is absolute, uh, two plus two equals four. But nonetheless, um, there's a lot of subjectivity with respect to how does a student arrive at that answer as well. So even with um, subjects like math that we often think as being very concrete and absolute, there's subjectivity within that as well. So it's not just the letter grades uh, that are more are less subjective, but uh, the the proficiency scale uh, and letter grades uh, they they both have um, uh, subjectivity in them. It, it's 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 impossible to right. avoid. I would say. I suppose our last guest had something interesting to say about around structure. That in in this sort of ever fluid world, that that sometimes structure matters, and that what the letter grades were were structure. They were definite. They weren't they weren't nice. They could be a bit on the cruel side, but they were structure. And maybe that's why so many kids said they didn't like them at first glance. And, and to that end, my response would be that with the letter grades, um, it was fine if you were a B or A student, but let's say you're the students that the C minus or a D student. Uh, what the letter grade is saying is that you're not even on the spectrum of learning. 
um, which is absolutely untrue. Uh, everyone is on the spectrum of learning. And, and the other thing that I would say about letter grades is that if you're frequently reinforcing the idea among students that you're a failure, you're a failure, I suspect that the Pygmalion effect is uh, is going to occur, being that it will be, become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So um, with this proficiency scale, what we're recognizing uh, and, and rightly recognizing is that all students are on this continuum of learning. They're at different points, but nonetheless, they're on the spectrum of learning. Um, so what, uh, what it does is it approaches learning from a strengths-based point of view as opposed to uh, a deficit point of view, which is associated with letter grades. Uh, the Ds frequently just keep on reinforcing the idea that there's a deficit. You have a defi- you deficiency. And if you keep on reinforcing that deficiency among students, I suspect that that's what you're going to continually get. Well, we shall soon see. Uh, Victor, thanks so much for your perspective on this. My pleasure. Pickleball. We talked about pickleball last year because there was a huge surge in popularity uh, in pickleball called Sports Illustrated called it the fastest growing uh, sport in America. This one association thought there was found there was 113 percent increase in pickleball between 2020 and 2022. And guess what? With action comes reaction. Right. So this week out comes a report from UBS analysts uh, and they figure, and this is America, by the way, that Americans will spend between $250 million and $500 million in costs tied to pickleball injuries this year alone. So this is, you know, clearly this is keep inside, you know, keep aside public health care. Uh, this is America. But they feel like there's a big issue with seniors and injuries playing pickleball. Uh, they think it's a microcosm for broader trends of the senior population who are coming out and becoming more active again after some years um, where they weren't because of the pandemic. So many things of these things, so many of these activities were stopped. But still, it's a pretty, it's a pretty interesting um I mean, I suppose it makes sense. We thought, okay, what is this probably saying is that people, because pickleball feels like a bit of a, like it feels a bit like a bit of a pastime, but it is very much an activity, right? Like it's like, it looks a bit like tennis. You got to move around. So you probably, people are probably warming up well enough, which is probably what it boils down to. Uh, Dana Dabrio is owner of Proactive Pilates and she joins us now. Uh, Dana, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. So did this come as, I mean, I suppose it shouldn't come as a surprise. I mean, I go by a pickleball court all the time um, near me. And a lot of the time people don't move around too much. But every once in a while, they get a good workout in there. And and like any sport like tennis, where there's a lot of stopping and starting, and uh, it can be hard on the body. It can, for sure. But as well, it's much less uh, hard on the body than I'd say because of the size of the court, because right. of the paddle and stuff. It's shorter levers that you're using compared to tennis. Um, it, I'd say it is definitely easier on the body relative to tennis. So any tennis players transitioning down because of sore shoulders or whatever, I'd say definitely have a, a much better uh, longevity on the courts um, in pickleball. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I, I guess it, it's not without its exercise, I guess. Is, you know, it's not, it's not uh, I, I wanted to compare it to something like shuffleboard, right? which it's not, clearly. Correct. <laughs> no, for sure. I know after uh, a good three-hour session with, with my group, I have close to 18,000 steps to 20,000 steps on, on wow. my uh, Apple Watch. So, so yeah, so we, again, depending on the level, depending on the skill, depending on um, the age. So there's lots, yeah, lots of well, variables, obviously, to take into account. 
Some of the injuries that that were a bit more, I mean, some of them were quite obvious. They're sort of, you know, racket sport related injuries with wrists and shoulders and so on. But some of the others were sort of sprained ankles, torn ACLs, things that speak more to to probably movement and also to, to warming up, I guess. Yeah, I'd say definitely as a physiotherapist, um, bodies love to move, um, especially in all directions. And I find a lot of things we do these days, like walking, hiking, and biking, they're good for us, but they don't involve changes of direction or any multiplanar movements. So I think it's a good thing for our body to want to be able to bend, turn, twist in all directions, which pickleball allows us to do. And so in one way, that's a great thing that our body is experiencing all these different planes of movement. Um, but as well, we do want to make sure some simple, simple things like warming up, jogging, skipping, or side shuffling um, beforehand, or at least a few minutes to get the blood pumping um, is always a good thing. Um, and even warming down at the end of it just to help decrease any muscle soreness or lactic acid buildup, that type of thing. So. Yeah, I, I saw a doctor interviewed on this earlier today. I'm trying to remember what his four P's were. There were four P's, which is sort of, you know, prepare. There was there was something along the lines of, like, it, it is an activity that you should prepare to do. And, and also, of course, as you get older, I mean, I'm getting older, you sometimes forget that you can't do the things, your body can't do the things it used to do, even doing something as relatively low impact as pickleball. Correct. So, yeah, remembering it's just a game and the point in rec play is only just a point is also is sometimes a good a good focus. Right. No diving. No need to dive or lose skin over this. <laughs> um, it's just a point. So, um, But especially one, one major thing in terms of prevention is um, eye protection. That is a big thing um, that our provincial association is really um, – promoting and ensuring that that's that's happening because um, there have been some some more serious eye injuries. So that's a very simple way to to help prevent injury um, of a more serious type is just make sure you're wearing your eye protection. What about footwear? Because that was the one of the ones that came up quite prominently here, that uh, that footwear can be inappropriate. And when you're moving, when you're kind of moving back, moving around at that the way one does in a racket sport, that you need footwear that's able to do that. So proper footwear is a big deal. Yeah, I'd say definitely some court shoes with some supportive cushioning to help um, take any of the impact of the, the different movements, right? There is some jumping overhead depending on, again, skill level and, and age, etc. cetera. Um, so, yeah, you definitely want something that's supportive and cushioning. Um, and basically something like a, a running shoe wouldn't have that same um, – setting the foot deeper into the shoe, um, keeping your base of support nice and low. So something like um, you might be more likely to sprain your ankle or go over on your ankle wearing something with a larger kind of heel, such as running right. shoe that's not meant to go laterally. It's more meant to go straight ahead. So anything with a court shoe, um, basketball shoe, something like that, that's used to the, the, the change of direction the agility required. Right. I mean, it was inevitable once it became really, really popular. It was inevitable that before long, we were going to hear something about injuries, right? I mean, it's just the way, the way of the world, right? It was, that was going to happen. Exactly. Is, it talked, is it talked about much within, within the game itself, within the community, about this idea of injuries? I'm sure people will have seen this report. It's been talked about far more than you'd expect, but here it is. Yeah, I, I'd say, you know, there's as a physio, I always get people asking me about their issues. So... Um, <laughs> So I find things, um, I'm a firm believer in fascial release work, using self-massage balls to kind of help loosen tension. Um, again, a lot, of, a lot of the friends I play with, we're playing somewhere between probably 9 to 12 hours a week 
in addition to our full-time jobs or whatever the, <laughs> the rest of it is. So, so making sure you um, take take care of your body after doing something for say two to three hours at a time, you want to make sure you're, you're, you're caring for yourself um, to help decrease any muscle tightness or stiffness. Um, stretching as well, also a good, good thing um, after a long session, um, especially in a tournament setting where you're playing sort of, you know, three days potentially back to back to back. Um, self-care, wow. hydration, electrolytes, um, all those very important in terms of, of taking care of yourself. Uh, muscle well, cramping yeah. can be, especially in, in that, you know, in heat and, um, yeah, muscle cramping can be a big issue as well. So I, I, sure I think, I think well where hydrated. they were finding, where they were finding problems here was, I mean, and, and they said as much, it was really amongst those right. over 60, right? I mean, it was, it was mostly, yeah. old, you know, older, and, but of course the problem is that the whole they've been trying for ages to encourage people as they get older to continue to do to do to exercise and this seems to be one of those magic bullets where a lot of people really enjoy doing this it does involve some real moving around so it is a great thing in all that way i guess simply what they're saying with this is just remind yourself that you're doing something that is, that it, that is relatively or somewhat demanding on your body so treat it treat it accordingly yeah for sure and i'd say even even the tournament settings funny enough it's the good thing with pickleball is there's such a, a rate of success. So they have different age groups with different skill levels. So you can have a tournament with 70 year olds competing at, in, you know, four different skill levels, which yeah. so that's one thing that's so addictive about pickleball. Um, a good addiction. I like to say is that, you know, everyone has enjoyment and fun and their competitive nature comes out. And I think that that's one of the main perks is it's such a social, um, such a social game and so yeah. the amount of friends and you know the amount of people you meet it, it's just an amazing um yeah it's an amazing sport to have that type of involvement of people of all ages and even younger yeah. athletes are getting involved now as well but yeah there, there was a funny story yeah. a funny story out of the mm-hmm. states where a young man who said you know i'm in perfect athlete, i'm in perfect shape i'm in great shape and i went out there and i got beaten by two guys named harvey and norm <laughs> he said they, yep. they definitely weren't in their four they definitely weren't in their 20s you know so that was that's one of the nice things about the game is that that equality of it and i suppose that what you're saying too is that applies to anybody as you get older and you exercise just to make sure that you take the time to avoid injuries because, you know, I, you know, we're really being encouraged to exercise as we get older these days. Uh, yeah. But the body needs a little more, like, like anything that ages well, the body needs a little more, a little more care and TLC as it, as it continues to do those things. Correct. And I'd say balance work is one key in terms of fall prevention, um, especially with an aging population. Um, something I, I teach with all my clients um, is ensuring that one leg balance, being able to just even when you're brushing your teeth, can you stand on one leg with really? your eyes open and not fall over? If that's easy, can you move your arms? Can you move your leg? Can you, if that's still easy, can you close your eyes? And being able to just know that your other foot's just there. So if you put your foot down, that you're not feeling safe, <laughs> you can always just, you know, put your other foot down and you're fine. But just working yeah. on one leg balance is a huge thing for false prevention. Interesting. Um, I might I might try that around around the sofa and not in the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, totally having good. the counter right there is good for you. You know, you can have yes, hands there true as enough. well. So, true enough. And yeah, true enough. So I'd say working from somewhere from thirty seconds up to sixty seconds. Can you can you maintain your balance there? That is a fabulous way to prevent falls and and overall that preventing falls prevents hospitalization. So 
yeah, good thing and that and that, uh, that's advice that extends far beyond the pickleball court. I know. So oh, that's, for sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Now we can. Is it? I, I apologize. Is it Dana or Dana? I apologize. It, it's Dana. Dana. There you go. Dana Dabrio, yeah. Thank you so much for your time on this tonight. I appreciate it. No problem at all. Thanks so much for having me. 